You're listening to This Rhetorical Life, a podcast dedicated to the practice, pedagogy, and public circulation of rhetoric in our lives. Soto, and today I'm introducing our guest host, Cruz Medina, who is an assistant professor of rhetoric and composition at Santa Clara University. In 2015, his book, Reclaiming Pochapop, Examining the Rhetoric of Cultural Deficiency, looked at the pop culture responding to anti-Latinx laws passed in Arizona. To me, this kind of work continues to strengthen a stance of hope in the face of continued state repression of people of color in the U.S. His current work with Octavio Pimentel looks at racist discourse circulating through social media in response to non-whites, and it also looks at how people of color compose multimodally for non-academic literacy practices, activism, and storytelling. Speaking of storytelling, I'm so excited to share his interview with Ana Castillo, renowned for her Chicana literature and coining the term Chicanisma. Her work reminds us of the long legacy of Latina resistance in art. I'm so glad Cruz Medina reached out to share his conversation with this important figure. Thanks, Cruz. Hi, Carrie Ann. So happy to be here. I had the opportunity to sit down and speak with writer Ana Castillo while we were both teaching this summer at the Breadloaf School of English in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Breadloaf is a master's in English program for Middlebury College in Vermont. The program in New Mexico is about 25 years old, but the Breadloaf program has been a who's who's of writers and scholars. Most notably, Robert Frost was associated with the program for decades, with word being even he'd purchased some of the land for the Vermont campus. From within the field of rhetoric and composition, Andrea Lunsford and Adam Banks have taught at Vermont. Cheryl Glenn has been the director at the Santa Fe campus, where Damian Baca also teaches. And I would recommend the Breadloaf program for any graduating undergraduate students who are going into teaching and want to continue to study English and earn their master's over the course of a few summers, from a diverse and prestigious faculty. I was really excited to speak and work this summer with Ana Castillo because like a lot of us in English, I came to writing through the appreciation of literature and I'm appreciative of Ana Castillo's work because her writing reflects aspects of Latina Latino experience in the US. Admittedly, I didn't come to her work when I was young. Instead, I came to know her work through the Mexican American Studies or MAS program that was banned in Tucson while I was a graduate student at the University of Arizona. I focus on this ban in my book, Reclaiming Pochopop, because I was impressed with the positive impact on students who had graduated from the program. While I was teaching writing at the U of A, I can recall one of my students, Crystal, who had graduated from the Mexican-American Studies program, walking out of my class reading Ana Castillo's book, So Far From God. Castillo's writing grapples with complex issues, including language, familial roles, ambition and expectations for women, and sexual identity. In addition to So Far From God, Castillo is well known for her book, Massacre of the Dreamers, Essays on Chicanisma, in which she coins the term Chicanisma with an X to refer to Chicana feminism. She wrote the Spanish adaptation to This Bridge Called My Back, as well as several novels, books of poetry, and other edited collections. Within rhetoric and composition, my friend and colleague, Asia Martinez, has drawn on Castillo's work and its attention to the imperialist role of language ideology and assimilation in the U.S. borderlands. 
Asia's work, like Castillo's, draws attention to aspects of how Latino, Latino experience language in the U.S., which is also being studied by Latinos such as Juan Guerra, Stephen Alvarez, Laura Gonzalez, and Sarah Alvarez. As a writer, Ana Castillo's work is the art that identifies subject matter before those of us who are academics and scholars are able to apply lenses or qualify and quantify these rich sites of inquiry. And this is so important because there are still folks doing research on Latinas and Latinos who bring in very little or no Latina and Latino scholarship, reaffirming what Jacqueline Jones Royster said in When the First Voice You Hear Is Not Your Own, that we are once again told that Columbus discovered America. In our interview, we discuss topics including transgressive writing, the use of Spanish in the home, reconciling what makes good writing with the misogyny of writers such as Charles Bukowski, having a supportive audience as a writer starting out, cultivating relationships with others through shared art, the stigma of clinical depression, and who receives rehabilitative treatment and who is penalized. We speak about how feminism continues to seek equal rights and why it is so important now for people of color and the implications of what it means to be a writer in the public eye. Thank you for um, the interview. So the title of your recent memoir is Black Dove, Mama, Mijo, and Me. Um, I think the Black Dove part comes from a song that your mother sang while you moved out. Is that true? And I think, uh, could you explain what was the subtitle, Mama, Mijo, and Me? Where does that come from? Okay. Um, the, uh, the book is a compilation of personal essays and memoir. Uh, the earliest... Uh, essay in the book is called My Mother's Mexico, and it goes back to over 20 years ago. I thought for a very long time that I would like to put together a combination of uh, essays that I was writing and, and publishing in different places, and that the leading essay would be uh, My Mother's Mexico, but as time has gone on, I think I've become more mother in this life than da daughter, so um, hence the changing of the title. The title, however, does come from my mother um, and her beautiful singing, singing voice, as I write about in the in the um, essay about this. Uh, she um, sang that song as I was leaving my home. Um, I wasn't going very far. I was trying to go to to community college. You know how that goes. First one, you know, who doesn't, uh, uh, you know, elope, but you know, decides to go and pursue her education, but. You know, for a Mexican and tr a traditional mother, that was like my taking the road to perdition. And that song, Paloma Negra, says that. You've gone off to live this, you know, um, this uh, nightlife, barrendera. Uh, Mamá, mijo, and me, so it is about my mother, but, um, and her influences on me. It's also about me and, and my uh, own teenage years in Chicago uh, during that period of time um, in the late 60s and early 70s. And then, as I mentioned, um, there's quite a bit of new material about raising a son.
that I found interesting too was I, I, I love that your your mother had this this really strong willfulness about only speaking Spanish to you in public, right? And I guess at home was it the same way where she'd only speak in Spanish at home? And then, because I, I, I think what sticks out to me about that is I know like friends of mine like Asia Martinez, who I know who cites your work with language. I'm wondering if like your experiences from your mother and her perspectives on language kind of informed how you think about language in some of your work. Well, I do think uh, quite a bit about language, and I don't know how much of that is exclusively with the bilingualism. My mother, in fact, may she rest in peace, never spoke to me in English, never. Her last words to me were before she died the day she did, which she had a stroke that day on dialysis, was, um, hasta luego, mi amor. I'll see you later, my love. She didn't say that in English. She never spoke to me in English. And what was so funny about that was that she worked for decades in factories outside the home, and so obviously she had to know English to some degree. Um, she also um, uh, sold Avon, and you know, so she had other things she had to do. She read the, the Chicago Sun-Times every single day, and yet it was ingrained in me that if I spoke to her in English, she would not understand me. And she would say that, no te entiendo. So then I'd have to speak to her in Spanish. Now everybody knows that that benefited me, wouldn't know that, logic would follow that that benefited me, and it, indeed it did, which is that I became fluent in, uh, bilingually. Um, uh, my father, who was born and raised in Chicago, was bilingual, but you know he was born and raised in Chicago and a product of the Chicago public schools, and he spoke to me mostly in, in English. He spoke to my mother also in Spanish, uh, but uh, he was a storyteller and with a Chicago accent from Little Italy, and so I also l listened to the nuances of how English is being spoken, how Spanish is spoken, who's speaking it, um, uh, who's speaking in either language, or are they using both languages? So I think that being an attentive listener as a child and trying to, like all children, learn from the people around you did make me very aware of language and how it's used. And inadvertently, although neither one knew where I came from as to decide to be a writer, inadvertently they both taught me about storytelling. I think I've heard you say too, you, you didn't start off to be a writer or maybe you started off as a poet. And in your book you do mention how I think it was your Tia Flor who was really like someone who was a great audience for you because she wasn't really judgmental. Um, do you think that that's really important for like a young writer or a new writer to have sort of that audience in mind who you know isn't going to be very judgmental of your writing? I remember um, Pablo Neruda's memoirs, Recuerdo que he vivido. I haven't read it since it came out in the 70s, but some things stay with me. And I remember him uh, talking about what he considered to be his first poem when he was eight years old. And then he went to the table where his dad and his stepmother were having an adult discussion, and they looked at it, and then they said, one of them said, um, who wrote this, or where did you copy this from? And he said that was his first experience with irresponsible literary criticism. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, as a child, I don't think that we do uh, get, um, in general, especially children who write and who are introspective, um, get that kind of respect, if you will, or are paid attention to. Um, I, I didn't develop that relationship with my aunt until I was a grown woman. She had five children to uh, concern herself with. Uh, so she wasn't my uh, she wasn't my audience, um, and I don't I don't know if I actually turned to writing and drawing 
because of that, because I was like a, a single child. I had two older siblings, but they were several years older and more company to each other and often to the world. So I spent a lot of time by myself. And I think that that, um, that was my audience. The books that I was reading, speaking to the books through my writing, as we do as writers. But I started that very young, just a little kid. After talking about the exchange of roles with an audience of writers and writers as audience, I asked Castillo about the role that her son played in her book. She describes a clarity about her son in her communication with him while he was rediscovering his love for reading and writing. This got me thinking about Castillo's experience as a writer starting out and how she describes her Tia Flor as being an audience for her who was never judgmental about Anna's writing. Similarly, I recall that Kurt Vonnegut said that he always wrote with his sister Allie in mind as his intended audience. So many of us who write and work with young writers are always switching between roles as we provide guidance and then ourselves transition into the vulnerable position of asking colleagues for feedback as we are writing. So I was curious about the kind of feedback and guidance a celebrated author would offer their child. Definitely, as an educator who has worked with uh, young people, young adults, since I was a young adult myself, I started teaching when I was 22 in a community college. Uh, it's a natural thing for me to uh, impart that with anybody, but especially if you know my son had, or, you know, he'd been through college. He was, you know, he's much more literary than I am. He went, he had a better education than I did. Um, he read Homer when he was 16 and Kierkegaard and, you know, things that I didn't uh, get a chance or, or an opportunity with the education that, that I uh, gleaned uh, initially. So he's easy, it's easy for us to have that conversation. He's a young, educated man, and, and I'm, a, a, you know, partly a college professor and part, uh, you know, uh, writer and public intellectual and thinker, and so I, I talk that way to everybody, really. Uh, but especially in the case of my son in this book, um, I felt that to a large degree I had lost him intellectually, uh, and I've said this uh, in the book and I've said this publicly, um, I don't know what it was. I know that my son spiraled mentally, he was in a depression and a very deep funk. He was very angry. There are many things that I speculate about in the essays that are in this book. Um, the editor uh, at Feminist Press uh, thought it was important to have his voice in it. I agree. And we, uh, we included an essay that he wrote when he was incarcerated and uh, some of our exchanges, our email exchanges. What I find very interesting and this goes back to your question, is how much of our dialogue is book-based. We sort of bounce off books and art and, you know, thinkers and writers, and even uh, when we talk about uh, ourselves uh, in terms of our identity as Chicanos, we're talking about Rudy Anaya or Oscar Seta Costa, and then there's Basquiat as an artist and a graffiti artist. So I thought that was interesting that um, that's how I relate to life, but that my son also was able to do that. 
the authors you mentioned as sort of being one that your your son found interesting and that you found yourself reading and talking to him about, I think, was Charles Bukowski, who is and is an interesting figure because he, you know, he's sort of thought as of this sort of uh, something a misogynist writer, right? And so this is very interesting, you know, knowing that you know you are uh, one of these people, you know, who came up in the the beginning of Chicana of feminist sort of theory and things. So how 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 was that sort of negotiating, sort of talking about Bukowski maybe as a writer as opposed to maybe some of the, the negative representations that he was putting out in his writing? Well, what I'll say about um, writing is that good writing is good writing. The subject matter aside, and um, I have enjoyed his stories. I personally feel perhaps he's a better um, poet than, um, than his prose. Uh, I discovered Bukowski um, maybe mid-'80s, uh, I don't know if, uh, I think he may have been still alive, I'm not sure. He was very hot in Paris, a Gancho conference in Paris. I think that's actually, you know, the French are always the first ones to go to the transgressive literature. So all that aside, that was cool for me because I could read his poetry and I'd, I have read very few men who are not a little bit misogynist. Um, and a lot of white people who are not a little bit ignorant about race and class and, you know, who did I uh, grow up reading or uh, as a self-taught writer? D.H. Lawrence, you know, uh, Quetzalcoatl uh, book, you know, or Hemingway talking about Spain. You know, these are white privileged men. So, so Bukowski, who's Bukowski? Another white man. Um, but uh, uh, that doesn't take away from my appreciation of how he handles language. Now, it was fun for me at that moment, which I did need a little levity with my son's um, uh, near tragic uh, spiraling and then ended up incarcerated for two years, was that when he asked for the books on Bukowski, I decided, well, I'll read the prose. I've read the poetry. It's cool. He's reading the poetry, and I, and I like it. We can talk about that, was that... Um, as I said, when good, good literature, good writing is good writing. And when you read good writing and you're a writer, just like when you're a painter or a musician and you hear something that speaks to your ear, to your, your eyes, you want to go home and do that. You want to try it. You get inspired. And I got inspired and um, I decided to experiment with transgressive literature. What happens consequently and very quickly was I wrote the novel, Give It To Me. And I wrote it in a, like maybe two months. So, uh, which I wrote it, one, to riff off of this style, to see what would, what would Anna Castillo write if she was going to write a transgressive, <laughs> if she was going to write a transgressive uh, piece of fun fiction. Um, then it also gave me a good laugh because on top of the fact that my heart was broken about my son's, where he was, and certainly never where I expected him to be, and what had happened to him mentally, which I also was heartbroken over, I was working on the updated revision of Massacre of the Dreamers, which is, if anyone has looked at the book, it's pretty dense and pretty serious, so I needed a little bit of levity, and that's what, uh, and that's what actually came out of going back to Bukowski.
couple of times, and I, I don't know if I've done a good job of sort of asking the question, sort of uh, maybe to tell a little bit about sort of your your son's situation with incarceration, because I think it, it really brings up these issues that have been coming up with the over-policing of young uh, black and brown and Latino uh, men. So, and at the same time, this question of mental illness that you're sort of raising and sort of how we tend to maybe deal with uh, mental illness through sort of punishment as opposed to actually trying to, you know, help these youth, right? So, Well, you're using the term mental illness, which, which has a stigma in our society and certainly has a stigma for our culture, which is anybody who goes see a therapist, you know, is loco, and if you're loco, you, you know, you're banished. Um, my son has never been diagnosed with anything. Uh, my observations are as a mother and someone who, who knew him, that saw him when he was despondent and when he was depressed, we're beginning to look at clinical depression and accept it in our society in general at this time as something that everybody almost in this, this crazy world that we live in uh, at some t point in their lives is, goes through this um, clinical depression Clinical meaning that it's um, almost out of control. You can't function, maybe, or it's hard to function, or you, you're, you know, you're in a very dark place. And so, um, I saw that in him. Now, the other thing I saw in him, which is social and which uh, which is um, uh, uh, addresses um, your question right now. Um, he was, uh, t from 12 years old on, he was growing up in Chicago, in the inner city of Chicago, not out in a nice suburb someplace where people like to say they're in Chicago, but they're really somewhere else in a nice little cul-de-sac. We were in a, one of the um, harshest neighborhoods in Chicago. It was what I had, uh, which was affordable, but, you know, it's difficult to be in any city in or town in this country right now without all the mixture of things that we are aware of that can be happening. There's uh, a lot of uh, drug availability. There's gangbangers for sure from here throughout the world, uh, from here to Russia, let's just put it that way. Uh, so uh, he, as a young man, when he leaves home, the house, the nice little apartment that we had with all its conveniences and his room and his own bathroom, um, he leaves and he is confronted by all of these elements. There's, as I said, there's drug pushers, and there's, you know, um, gangbangers, and there's, you know, prostitution that's real evident, uh, you know, happening like right in the back alley, people selling drugs, could happen anywhere. But also, there's uh, uniform police, and they're at the train station, but they're not stopping everybody. Who they were stopping were the young people, and they were young people of color. I saw it myself. I saw them let me walk by or go across the turntable, uh, coming back from teaching my class at night, 10 o'clock at night, but they'd, they'd pull over young women and young men of color, teenagers. My son was one of them. And so what begins to happen is despite the fact that he does have a mother who's, uh, who, who has educated him and he has uh, privilege for education and for travel and things like that, uh, how he is viewed uh, in the eyes of this environment is as a potential menace or, or a, pot a potential recruit um, or uh, uh, some, somehow or other um, suspect. He might be an immigrant, undocumented, all of these things. So 
what young people started to do is they start to rebel, as they do everywhere. And he also began to get that chip on his shoulder, uh, and you start to, it's a fulfill, self-fulfilling prophecy. You start to act tough. You start to get build a hard shell. You start to become aggressive, or at least I've seen this with these young people. They become aggressive with other people, other young people, and you know, and so on. And so that's what I um, I address in the book, from a personal level, on a on a on a social level. We have a, a multi-billion-dollar incarceration, mass incarceration industry. So a lot of pe people make a lot of money on that. Where I take also personal offenses, who gets sent to rehab and who does not? At the time of my son's arrest, we had two Illinois governors in federal prison. Now, when they come out, I don't think it's going to be difficult for them to find housing. I don't think it's going to be difficult for them to find uh, employment and to support their families and the lifestyles that they enjoyed in the past. But if the majority that are going to prison are people of color or uh, people who are already marginalized by society uh, because of their uh, class background or what have you or lack of education, and they come out and they can't find a place to live or they can't uh, provide for their young children or be reunited with their families. Or, uh, and this has happened to my son and is happening to him today as we speak where he is eligible. He has a college education and he's eligible and he's been clean and he had a, uh, the, the, that, uh, that felony was uh, uh, an isolated incident in the sense that he um, had no record before that, nothing since then. Uh, he was uh, let off probation early. Nevertheless, because of our laws, uh, he has been turned down for numerous positions for which he's qualified uh, because of the fact that the law permits you not to hire somebody. Yeah, you have to if, check out that box. And, the, and They do a background check, and even though he has numerous times been um, uh, offered a job or liked it in an interview and so on, they'll tell them we can't do it. Castillo's writing is particularly salient and endures because her experiences resonate so much with what is currently happening. In her 1993 novel, So Far From God, Castillo was challenging readers' assumptions about sexuality. In her novel, strong female characters fall in love and have relationships with both men and women before there was real widespread support for issues such as marriage equality. Castillo grew up in Chicago during the Black Power Movement and she comments on her understanding of being a woman of color in schools that lacked resources. With the increase in charter and private schools, education continues to fail young people of color through systemic forms of segregation that leave these communities with little hope or options of achieving their American dream. In our historical moment, the Black Lives Matter movement asks for the deferred dream of life and the pursuit of happiness. At the same time, when there are murders such as the mass shooting at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, Florida, we see how these struggles for equality continue in the face of individuals 
indicative of communities who resist social equality and inclusivity. In the context of all these events weighing so heavily on those of us working to provoke critical consciousness, staying woke, and advocating for social justice, I asked Ana Castillo, what do you think of the fact that there is an extreme need for social movements that parallel those that you grew up with? don't live in a democracy and uh, misogyny, uh, patriarchy, I'll throw all the, the terms, you know, the usual suspects out there. Feminism responds not just to uh, women's rights, but to human rights. I think Audre Lorde said if, you know, black women are, don't have equal rights, nobody has them. We have to think about the people that we have marginalized and disenfranchised most. And everybody in society at some point or another is. So there's, it's a fallacy to think that we have a democracy and that everybody has the same opportunity. But, but in terms of patriarchy, you know, women for eons have been uh, kept in a secondary place. In terms of um, race issues in this country, which is only over 200 years old, but if we include the Americas, we're talking about uh, the you know, conquest of Mexico and and Peru and so on, so it's over, over a half a millennium ago here of, of uh, colonialism here. If we talk about other places in the world, it's been going on for a very, very long time. So um, 20, 30 years is just a drop in the bucket as far as some of the things that we are addressing. We have made enough progress to say it was needed and lives have been lost and lives have been dedicated to these, uh, to these issues. But, um, but of course, it's not a surprise to me to think that today we still uh, look at a woman who looks like me and assume that I'm not the professor in the room, but maybe the cleaning lady. It's, an, it's, a, it's a natural assumption. We go, uh, young, young and older people of color walk into a nice store, and before you know it, the security is following you around. These are this uh, prof racial profiling not only went on for a long time before, of course it's still going on, and it's gonna be a very long time before uh, we see you know, a little more changes, but I don't see it happening, uh, not in my lifetime, and I don't think even in my granddaughter's lifetime. saying so much of this, um, you know, what's happening in your life or what happened in your son's life very much resonates with a lot of these things happening, you know, and that does go back to this idea of sort of the personal being the political. And so I, I think maybe I'm interested too in thinking about how um, you've addressed sort of this idea of sort of needing to maybe walk the line between like this public, how you're viewed sort of as this public intellectual and writer versus maybe maintaining this private life. And I think that's something that maybe a lot of people are thinking about now in terms of like social media. We don't see ourselves, we, we blur that line often. But I feel like, um, how did you come to this idea that you feel like you wanted to make sure to maintain, you know, your private life in such a way that wasn't, you know, on display with you as the public writer as well? For a long time, and it was also my mother's wish, I kept my family and my own uh, relationships out of the public eye because 
while I may have signed up to be a public person when I started to publish, and the minute you publish something, it belongs to the public. So it's not as if I thought, oh, I'm going to be a famous writer. It's just the fact that I went to do some readings, poetry, reading political poetry, and then I put it out, and my name is there. And so you, know, you go to conferences, or you begin to be a speaker. And so all of that, uh, whether it's in your town, in your hometown, or if it's an international forum, makes you a public person. But my family and the people that had relationships with, personal relationships with me, didn't sign up for that. So out of respect for the people around me, I also could not address a lot of the things that, that I was experiencing on a, per, on a, on a personal level. Uh, most recently, with, um, with the material that I have written about as a mother and my son's life, and my son is fully on board with telling the story publicly, came from the fact that uh, this is a major problem that we have in our society, and it addresses all of those things. It addresses the, the mass incarceration, it, 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 the fallacy of the war on drugs from the Reagan era, era from the, since the 1980s, um, uh, how our poor communities and communities of color have been invaded by drugs, and, and all the multitude of things that happen to our young people generation after generation. My son and I felt it really important to share this story, uh, not only for our own personal healing, but also in a way to open up that communication for other people. I think people have an idea that when you're successful at what you do, in my case, publishing books, that you're living this wonderful, glamorous, carefree life, and, um, and as we know, when we read these, you know, uh, you know, magazines or <laughs> about celebrities, and we say, "Oh, look what's going on in the life," we see that nobody's exempt from the the social social ills. And it's important for me, as a person who cares about um, all of these issues that we've talked about, for for people to understand that I'm not talking from a ivory tower or from uh, some um, observational. Uh, space, but that I'm part of that. Thank you so much, Anna Castillo, for being here, and um, thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Co-executive producers of This Rhetorical Life are Ben Kubrick and Carrie Ann Soto with additional production from Andre Habeck.